This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash artscouncilengland. Access excellence. Amateur professional. Producer consumer. Artist audience. Binary binary. And yet, the great Birmingham pre-Raphaelite Edward Byrne Jones was asked why he drew inspiration not from the thrusting industrial world growing around him, but from, biblical, from the biblical and mythical past. His response was simple. The more factories they build, the more angels I will paint. In other words, artists define their craft in opposition to the culture around them which includes, in Burne Jones's time and our own, the prevailing culture of the culture. Over the last 70 years, that culture has changed. But as we know, there's been four basic views in contention. Although concerned to widen access to the arts, the early Arts Council saw its principal role as defending the patrician principles of high art. Art's role as ennobling, its realm the nation its organizational form, the institution, its repertoire, the established canon, and works aspiring to join it. Against populism, art's primary purpose is entertainment, its realm, the marketplace, its form, the business, its audience, mass. As Keynes himself put it, death to Hollywood. Over the next 30 years, this patrician view of the arts came under attack but not from the populist marketplace, but from individual artists who are artistically and often politically oppositional. In the theatre in the late 50s, on the BBC in the early to mid-60s, pretty much everywhere from 1968, the patrician institutions were under siege from the self-consciously provocative. What both the patrician and the provocative shared was not just a focus on the artist, but on the exclusion of the audience. George Devine was famously contemptuous of what he called the fashionable assholes who made up his royal court audience. For Schoenberg, the only point of having an audience at all was that it made a marginal improvement in the acoustic of the concert hall. <laughs> but what happened in 1979 in culture, as in all spheres of life, was a dramatic power shift from the producer to the consumer from the patrician to the populist. And some on the left were not entirely hostile to the Thatcherite assault on the great patrician institutions and saw the possibility of a provocative popular alliance which would both democratize the notion of culture and give it a new set of social purposes, contributing to urban rejuvenation, social inclusion, reskilling, even healthcare. Combined with and enabled by a new emphasis on access, New Labour sought to democratise the arts. This new settlement had dramatic and positive results we all know about. But we also all know what happened next. The backlash against instrumentalism, first by artists, then by Tessa Jowell and James Purnell, led to the McMaster Report with its dramatic reassertion of patrician principles and a major shift in emphasis away from the interest of the consumer back to the producer. True, McMaster proposed that everyone can go to the arts free for a week. I don't know what happened to that. But what they saw there would be defined by the professionals. 
But it was never going to work for a raft of reasons. Excellence was as hard to define then as perhaps great art is now. But the killer was the recession. There's no question that in times of austerity, publicly funded arts are going to be asked to justify themselves in terms that are comparable to, to, to those used to justify the services with which they're in competition for dwindling funds. However attractive, the, the, however attractive, the return to justifying art solely in terms of their intrinsic value was still born. And, all, and since then, almost all the research and thinking has gone back to trying to find a way of measuring artistic outcomes. True, people are now insisting on looking at outcomes that only arts can produce, empathy, imagination, expansion of horizons, making unexpected connections, simulating extreme or intimate experiences in safe sites. Sometimes that's a different way of saying the same instrumental thing, but buttressed by increasingly robust evidence for benefits of arts activity in schools, contributing both to informal and formal outcomes in healthcare and in the criminal justice system. For some time, it's been possible for young offenders to be sentenced to the new Victoria Theatre Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> the conundrum was and is that most of that evidence comes from people conveniently gathered together in schools, hospitals, and prisons, and most is about the benefits of participating in arts, not attending them. It's much, much harder to quantify the beneficial effects of what most arts consumers do most of the time, which is to stand or sit, hearing, reading or watching what other people are doing or have done. So it seems to me the crucial question is, how should we think about how we relate to spectators? How do we make spectatorship genuinely participatory? Now, no one is going seriously to defend the traditional patrician principle of handing down the arts that are good for us in, from a great height, though, of course, that's how the overwhelming majority of arts events are actually programmed. And we might have things to learn from the populist marketplace. Clearly, there's a level of personal ownership by audiences of the great West End musicals, which many arts organizations would envy. As Neil Bartlett points out, no one ever turned to their lover in the theater on a night such as tonight and said, darling, listen, they're saying our speech. And the fact that audiences are prepared to pay huge sums to see shows based on films, often like Wizard of Oz, Chicago, and Billy Elliot, films of unbeatable quality, is a monument to the continued and unique power of a live theater experience. But the fact that over half the shows in the West End are based on material that the audience already knows, films, television shows, rock songs, demonstrates the limits of the populist model. Surely what the public sector should be doing is finding ways not of confirming the familiar and the formulaic, but going on a shared journey to somewhere new. It's troubling to me that almost all of the arts reports and studies of the last five years have uncritically cited the role of the arts in cementing rather than challenging. And the only one that questions the arts as a social palliative was published by the right-wing think tank Policy Exchange. Last year's case report on the values of arts and sport, engagement lists continuity with the past, community cohesion, and a sense of national pride among the benefits which the arts can generate. Of course, the arts can promote those values. But unlike the other creative industries, they can, should, and do call them into question as well. 
Of course, there's a risk that involving audiences in curation will make the arts less innovative. As David Bowie once said, producer power gave us the Beatles, consumer power gave us boy bands and the Spice Girls. And as we know from the Arts Council's 2008 segmentation of the population into rigid sociological silos, only urban arts eclectics and traditional culture vultures go to the arts a lot, while fun, fashion and friends, midlife hobbyists and retired arts and craft will never know, go more than a bit, and time-poor dreamers, older and homebound and limited means and nothing fancy, won't ever go at all. But I'm more taken with Fresh Minds' 2007 report for the DCMS, Culture of Demand, which argues persuasively that if sensible and welcoming things are done, among them involving families and an element of the social, the barriers to arts attendance are not insurmountable, that forms of cultural democratization, elements of co-creation, consultation, and commissioning of arts events are appealing, and that, uh, and that if audiences aren't treated as assholes, they aren't averse to the unexpected. In that, I'm with Arlene Phillips. I remember the inspiring television documentary on the curation of a sculpture park by residents of Sheffield's Biker Grove Estate. I know the transformative power of writing community plays. I'm excited by the work of Graham Vick's Birmingham Opera Company, which integrates professional singers and musicians with amateur actors and dancers who reflect the city's diversity and bring an equally diverse audience of family and friends into the opera with them. Up and down the land, arts organizations are finding new ways to engage with the public as co-curators, thinking about how to prepare audiences to get the most out of the arts events they attend, and yes, to voice not just the public's contents, but also their discontents. Which brings me back to Burne Jones and his angels. Our equivalent of his factories are the twin, unintended, but persuasive evils of globalization. Homogenization, Starbuck nation, and atomization, bowling alone. What the arts should do is provide an alternative to both. Not death to Hollywood, but an alternative to Hollywood. Not art as schooling or social work or policing carried on by other means, but art that does things no other form of cultural expression can do because it's live and it's here. And so I end with the person with whom I hope the future lies, the provocative participant. Five-year-old Lucy is in her painting class when her teacher asks her what she plans to paint today. I'm going to paint God, announces Lucy. But Lucy, says the nervous teacher, no one knows what God looks like, says Lucy. They will now. This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash Arts Council England.